Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Happy to have another semester down at the fine University of Georgia. Yes, you probably had a good end to your semester. The University of Georgia football team did not have a good end to their semester, but we won't dwell on that too much on today's show. On this week's podcast, we are going to recap Senator-designate Kelly Leffler's first week and check in on our predictions that we made last week about what she would be like as a U.S. senator. She has not arrived in Washington yet, but she has been introduced to the Georgia political world following her appointment by Governor Kemp last week. Then Georgia Supreme Court Justice Robert Benham announced that he will retire in March rather than serve out his full term through the end of 2020. That allows Governor Kemp to appoint a replacement and delays an election for that seat. We'll discuss Benham's legacy and talk about the role Georgia's Supreme Court plays. Luke, but let's go ahead and start here with the first week of Kelly Leffler as Senator-designate. We recorded last week prior to Governor Kemp officially making that appointment of Kelly Leffler to succeed Johnny Isaacson in the U.S. Senate, and we started to sort of play out what kind of senator we thought she would be. I think what was most striking about her introduction, and this is keep in mind the first impression that we got of her, not necessarily how she will perform in the role as senator, but the messaging that she cared about in the introduction of who she is, she came out and basically tried to mollify her conservative critics Let's listen to a little bit of her first digital ad that tries to establish who Kelly Leffler is. I'm a lifelong conservative, pro-Second Amendment, pro-Trump, pro-military, and pro-wall. And when it comes to protecting innocent life, I look to God because every life is a blessing. No one will fight harder for our state, for our nation, for our president, and for our conservative values. May God bless Georgia, and may God bless America. All right, Luke. So she's pro-Second Amendment, pro-Trump, pro-military, pro-wall, and she's super pro-life. Did you? What do you think of that being her initial messaging, uh, being very answering the criticisms that conservatives levied at her prior to the appointment? I don't know if we necessarily need to just like play back what I said <laughs> would happen last week. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is exactly what I said would happen in that she came out there and said exactly what I said she would say, which is I am the most pro-Trump person <laughs> on the planet. I am the pro, you know, most anti-choice person on the planet. Uh, and if you doubt that, listen to me say it again and again and again. Um, you know, again, this is Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp appointing her. Uh, so I am unshocked by the fact that she said these things. So so she's going to do a great job bringing moderate Republicans, maybe even some Democrats, a lot of Isaacson voters back into the Republican fold, isn't she? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, and that $20 million of hers is uh, really not going to hurt on that front either. I think I shouldn't give myself too much credit. I did pay attention in Sunday school, and you're supposed to at least pretend to be humble or try to be humble. Uh, and that this this was the easy thing to predict that uh, Leffler would come out and you know say these things and uh, 
say that she's the most pro-Trump person on the planet um, and intonate that. What I'm going to be really interested in seeing is if she moderates, if, you know, as now Senator Mitt Romney would suggest, extra catch herself and, you know, uh, restart uh, when she actually becomes a senator and if she, you know, picks issues that will uh, be influential in potentially getting some of those suburban women voters and others and expanding her base and trying to be a Johnny Isaacson. She has a lot of money that she's putting in, apparently $20 million to help her in that effort um, if she goes either route. But I think based off of the context of her being appointed to the seat and the controversy around it and the heat that uh, Governor Kemp was taking from Donald Trump and others, like, this is exactly what she was going to do because there's a lot of attention on her. And the Doug Collinses of the world thinking about potentially challenging her would, are looking for an opening. And if this is the tone and approach she's going to take, um, I still think they have an opening because if Donald Trump says someone's better for him and that's who he wants, then if that matters to you, if that's a metric that you care about, you're going to trust Trump more than anyone else. And even if Leffler says, no, I'm actually really great on Trump, and I really like him, and I voted 100% for him, like, even if Collins was not a strong of supporter, if Trump thought he was and said he was, then that's what's going to matter. Um, so I, I think this is probably just an attempt on her part to quiet those voices. What I'm going to be really curious about is seeing if that continues once she's actually in office and if she's going to uh, push trump and his positions as hard as she possibly can we do have an impeachment trial coming up probably uh and how she handles that i think is going to be very interesting to watch and still honestly unpredictable because um for conservatives she just came out there and said all the things that uh they would want her to say but now will she do those things as well so to me my reaction was this is a really fascinating experiment by Republicans who typically decry identity politics of bringing someone into the fold here, Kelly Leffler, who is a woman who sort of on paper would be appealing to suburban moderate voters and pushing forward her identity in one direction, but pushing forward her rhetoric and her positions in the complete opposite direction. So it's this fascinating experiment of can they bring moderate Republican voters back into the fold simply by putting forward a white woman as opposed to a man, while also having her be pro-Trump, pro-military, pro-wall, more pro-life than any other senator in the history of the United States Senate? That, to me, will be really interesting in terms of does she establish her identity around sort of who she is as somebody who grew up on a farm, as somebody who's been successful in business, in that sort of more moderate persona that is more appealing in the suburbs? Or does her race ultimately become about the things that she says and does? Because like you mentioned, Luke, there will be an impeachment trial in the Senate relatively soon. This week, on the week that we're recording, Democrats uh, formally introduced articles of impeachment. Um, they introduced two of those articles. It, I, From where we are now, it seems very unlikely that those articles won't get passed by the House and make their way over to the Senate. She's going to have to vote, and presumably she would you know, set Trump world ablaze if she voted to remove him from office, so she won't do that. 
So she has what she said, the clip that we played, that it won't be surprising if Democratic campaigns play that clip and let her introduce herself in that way. She'll have the vote on impeachment, which may or may not be a big deal, but is not an opportunity for her to demonstrate independence from the president. And then you have Democrats, both state Democrats in the legislative races and national Democrats who look at Georgia as a battleground state, trying to appeal to Republican voters and moderate voters who may have been disillusioned by Donald Trump and setting up Kelly Loeffler as no different than David Perdue in being Donald Trump's sidekick. So it'll be really interesting if there's like a divergence between Purdue and Leffler in terms of support in the suburbs, based maybe almost entirely on Kelly Leffler's identity. I'm skeptical of that theory. The more I learn about this appointment and see this appointment, there's two things I think that matter in like why Leffler was picked. The first thing is Brian Kemp just picks unorthodox people it's like it's just what he does like if any other person was governor of georgia i'm not just talking about stacy abrams i mean if you know uh, casey cagle or uh hunter hill or any other other people who were running for uh the governor's seat one and had this appointment handed to them i really doubt she would have gotten appointed um i think it's just because this is what brian kemp does and he picks people who are unorthodox now in the back of his head, the identity, suburban politics kind of thing, I'm sure it's in there. But the other thing I think it really matters to Brian Kemp and to the party is that, one, she has pledged for this election to put in $20 million on day one. And, like, people talk about David Perdue buying the seat, but that's significantly more money than Perdue put in. I believe Perdue put in, like, $6 million. Um, and that's like for the whole race. She's starting out on day one putting that in. Doesn't mean that's all she's going to put in. She could put in more. The other element is that effectively Kemp was picking his running mate, and so I think Kemp, looking at the Georgia GOP, looking at the fact that, let's assume the best-case scenario for them, the best-case scenario is that one Republican runs and multiple Democrats run, for this seat they have to spend a lot of money to win it just because georgia's competitive and so you have to spend money because they know democrats are going to spend money in the state because there's two senate seats and the presidential on the line so you have a senate candidate that blows probably the most expensive senate race in the history of georgia all that money then they have to turn around and do it two years later and brian kemp who had this decision also is on the ballot and he also is going to have to raise money for what again might be the most expensive governor's race in georgia so if you're brian kemp having someone that can self-fund also means it's less money going to your uh you know ticket mate and more money that can go to you and so i think that just raw fiscal analysis probably went into brian kemp's calculus let's check in on the democrats we are basically a week into kelly leffler being senator-designate, being the person who will fill this role. No Democrat has announced, or there were Democrats like Matt Lieberman who had announced prior to the appointment, but no Democrat has announced since the appointment, and there is not like one or two Democrats that the party is rallying around as the standard bearers for the Democratic Party in this jungle primary on Election Day in 2020. Is there any downside, Luke, to 
Democrats not offering up their candidate like immediately after the Leffler appointment. I mean, she is has the opportunity to, to now start creating the ads like the one we played to start spending some of her money to establish who she is. And she is currently going up against the state Democratic Party press releases, email releases, tweets in the Georgia political Twitter thread. Is there a downside for Democrats not having someone on deck right when Leffler was appointed? So being a, you know, a millennial in America uh, in this fun time, I have a lot of uh, side gigs. And one of the things I do is work on political campaigns and advise political campaigns. And I am a firm believer that to run a successful campaign, you have to be very strategic and very deliberative about what you do. And you have to put a ton of thought into things before you launch a campaign, before you you know, define your message. And, and honestly, a lot of that thinking comes uh, right at the beginning. And it's the questions of, you know, like, why me? Why now? Why should I blank run for this seat right now? Um, and for any Democrat, Stacey Abrams on down to the lowest of the low state house rep to a county commissioner thinking about running for this race, you needed to know who your opponent was to really think about it because this is not an open situation. There was going to be an incumbent, uh, and we know who it is now. And we also know that she's going to put $20 million into the race on day one, and that's a lot of money. And so if you're a Democrat starting out running for this race, you're $20 million in the hole already compared to your opponent. And that's a big hill for someone to climb. So to be honest, I would kind of be worried if someone after a week after getting all these new facts, thought they were in a position to pull the trigger and had a message and had a campaign that felt like it was ready to go. Because I don't care how smart you are or how creative you are, you can't do that really hard work that quickly and have a really good campaign that's really surefire going to be a compelling message and that you're going to be a compelling contrast candidate to someone who again last week i mispronounced her name and did it in multiple different ways and it was really exciting every time i opened my (laughs) mouth to hear which one i was going to say was a Um, great called open right it was great uh we all loved it you loved it we loved it um and you know now i'm hoping i'm pronouncing it right um and so I don't think it's a bad thing because I think the alternative would have been that the party had kind of settled on someone who they thought would be the best um, to run for it and they would announce immediately thereafter and it would be sloppy and generic uh, politicking. And Georgia is a swing state. We are not running in Vermont. We are not running in California. Like for Democrats to win, they have to be very, very smart and they have to be very deliberate in what they do and who they pick. And just being blunt and frank here, the state party is not great at picking candidates and defining who's going to win on you know the outset, especially in Senate races, uh, because the last time we did that was Jim Barksdale, who is just a fucking joke. No, you know, offense meant uh, because that campaign <laughs> was awful. Um, and anyone who would want to say otherwise, you know, give me a call because I, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, and He's we'd a love big to hear Tulsi yours. Gabbard fan now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right. We don't have to go down that side road. Please, let's not. Um, Yeah, so with that being said, um, 
yeah, so, like, I don't have a lot of faith in the party to do this right, um, and that's, that's unfortunate, because it is a very difficult calculus they have to do, because as we have discussed, um, this is a very difficult situation where the party that has the less amount of serious candidates running has a huge, huge, huge advantage, um, and so this is unfortunately not a situation where everyone should run and let the best man or woman win and uh, let's you know try that out on the primary and uh, go you know go from there. We we have a jungle primary situation where if you know only Leffler runs or only Leffler and some like joke Republicans who have no support running and then two or three serious Democrats running. Like, we're not even going to have a jungle, like, a runoff. Like, she's just going to wing it outright just because the Republican vote will be consolidated and our vote won't be. Well, I will just say that, lucky for you, Luke, names like Michael Thurmond and Sherry Boston, those are pretty easy for you to pronounce. Uh, but if it ends up being Jen Jordan, you got to remember that it's Jordan and not Jordan. Well, I, re- I you know, uh, really respect Sanger Jurgen and have been following her career for quite some time in that tough uh, Democratic jungle primary that she won uh so jurgen is firmly stuck in my head all right well with that let's uh, move on so there was a big resignation in georgia politics here in the last week and that was the announced early retirement of justice robert benham from the georgia state supreme court his retirement shuts down an election to replace him next may delaying that election until 2022 and leaving candidates who are raising money for that race high and dry Instead, Governor Kemp will get to appoint Justice Benham's replacement on the Supreme Court, and that person will run for that seat as an incumbent again in 2022. So let's discuss Justice Benham's retirement, what it means for the people who were seeking to succeed him on the state's highest court, and the role and power of the Georgia State Supreme Court generally. Luke, let's start with Justice Benham here. Justice Benham is a really interesting and historical figure in Georgia state politics, in Georgia judicial history. He was the second African-American to graduate from UGA's law school. Uh, He graduated from UGA law in 1970, and he was appointed to the Court of Appeals in 1984. He then ran in an election to keep that seat, won that election. He became the first African-American to win a statewide election in Georgia. And then in 1989, Governor Joe Frank Harris appointed him to the Georgia State Supreme Court, the first African-American to serve on that court. But he will be leaving the court early. He made a decision to retire in March of 2020 instead of serving out his full term to the end of 2020. Luke, what is his early resignation mean for the election that would have allowed someone to succeed him on the court and for uh, people like Court of Appeals Judge Sarah Doyle, former Congressman John Barrow, former state lawmaker Beth Beskin, and Superior Court Judge Horace Johnson, four people who are running in that open race to be the next member of the state Supreme Court. Yeah, so I mean, effectively, it means their their race is over uh, because the election has been postponed until 2022, and they can't apply uh, to be considered for the position because there is 
a little bit of bureaucracy that goes into it. Um, luckily, you know, Brian Kemp can't just pick a farmer to be the next, you know, Supreme Court justice. Uh, not, nothing against farmers, except they're just not qualified to be, uh, you know, justices on a Supreme Court. Um, so they could do that, but, you know, more likely than not, as we've been discussing in our, you know, first topic, uh, Brian Kemp's going to pick whoever the hell Brian Kemp wants to pick. And I really doubt it would be former Congressman John Barrow, which is a shame because he'd probably be a great Supreme Court justice. Um, uh, and it very well might not be any of the other people who are running. Um, I imagine Kemp will probably approach this uh, position the exact same way that he approached uh, the last one and casting an incredibly wide net and picking someone that we've all never heard of. Yeah, there was actually on Political Rewind last week, there was some interesting sort of speculation about why Justice Benham may have retired early, kicking this to an appointment for Governor Kemp rather than an election for an open seat. And one bit of speculation was that Justice Benham may have made a quiet agreement with Governor Kemp that Governor Kemp appoint another African-American jurist to the state's highest court because the two leading candidates in that race were probably Sarah Doyle and John Barrow, two white candidates. Um, I, obviously, there's nothing to confirm that. That's really not the kind of thing that's going to end up being confirmed in the media, although it'll be sort of worth rethinking once Governor Kemp announces his appointment, if it does happen to be an African-American or, or somebody who is from an underrepresented background when it comes to the court. I don't. It, do you have any thoughts on his decision to retire early, or on that speculation that he may have wanted to sort of nudge Governor Kemp into appointing someone specific, someone from an underrepresented background to the court? I, you know, being honest, I I would be surprised if that wasn't part of the conversation. But you know, to to just be blunt, like the dude's pretty old. <laughs> like he might just want to like do something with his life besides. Uh, beyond the Supreme Court because he's been on there for quite a long time. Um, so it very well could be health concerns, family concerns. You know, he hasn't really uh, gone into a lot of detail about why he's stepping down, but I, I would not be shocked if those were not factors as well because he has just been there a really long time. And for, you know, myself and I'm 27, you know, like another year and a half really doesn't seem that long. But, you know, when, <laughs> when you're up there in age, like that's a long time. So... He, he might have just wanted to to move on, and uh, I, I will say I'm sympathetic because when I know I have a next chapter coming, I like to get to that next chapter as I you know as fast as I probably can uh, possibly can. Um, and so I'm sure that's part of it. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, I, I would kind of be shocked if he hadn't had some discussion uh, with uh, Governor Kemp about this decision. Um, so I, I'm sure it's a combination of, of those factors and maybe some other ones that we don't know. Now, I think for me, especially in terms of the fact that Governor Kemp will get to appoint a successor to the court for Justice Benham, it brought to mind for me the importance of the U.S. Supreme Court and the ideological struggle that is currently taking place on the court. But Luke, the state Supreme Court, it's different than the U.S. Supreme Court. What role does ideology play? And is there anything that we can learn about the court from Governor Kemp getting another major appointment where surely he will appoint someone who maybe we haven't heard of, somebody who's maybe unexpected, but somebody who has values that match his? Well, the the first thing I'd say is like, what is the role of the Georgia Supreme Court? And 
you know, this don't want to take anything for granted. Like their job is to interpret Georgia statutes interpret interpret the Georgia constitution, uh, you know, do a lot of this, a lot of similar things to what the federal Supreme court does, but just on a Georgia level, interpreting Georgia's legal texts. I would say just on average, it's probably less ideological in a purely partisan Democrat Republican way, uh, primarily just because the federal government decides so many of those things. That being said, though, in sort of a larger schematic conservative versus liberal in like a nonpartisan way, but just like ideologically speaking or issue speaking of sort of like, do you favor corporations or workers or, you know, the powers of the executive, what election law is, uh, these courts can end up being very, very partisan. Uh, one thing though, in sort of like, I hope would help ground what state Supreme courts do is I, I pulled up uh, the cases that were uh, scheduled for oral arguments on January 22nd of, of 2019. And I'm just going to read like the, like this is the, what this case is about for these three, just to give you an idea, because I think it's really illustrative of one, how it's incredibly different. And then two, how, you know, the direct answer to your question, is it partisan or not? So the first one, Mercer University is appealing the decision by the Georgia Court of Appeals allowing a wrongful death lawsuit against the university to go forward in Bibb County State Court. The next one, the city of Gunton and the director of the state's Environmental Protection Division are appealing a Georgia Court of Appeals decision in favor of a man who challenged the state's issuance of a permit for a waste treatment facility near his land. And finally, a man who pleaded guilty to several counts of burglary is appealing a Georgia Court of Appeals opinion upholding his enhanced sentence as a repeat offender that was based on previous out-of-state convictions. These are not cases that you genuinely would hear in the Georgia, uh, in the you know federal Supreme Court. These are a lot of just like really nuanced things about how the law works in the state of Georgia, um, and those can have really, really partisan, really ideologically conservative or liberal effects, depending on who the justices are, but that's not generally the framing in which those uh, issues are discussed or thought about. So, I mean, are there some instances, I mean, the cases that kind of come to mind for me that the state Supreme Court has ruled on recently, uh, the state Supreme Court often considers appeals uh, in death penalty cases, particularly at some of the final hours before someone is executed. Um, as far as I know, I can't really think of a recent case where a death penalty conviction was overturned or even really held up by a state Supreme Court on more than technical matters. Um, there, there are those cases that I'm thinking about. The Georgia State Supreme Court recently upheld a lower court ruling that dismissed the election challenge in the 2018 lieutenant governor's race. Uh, Sarah Rigsamico, the candidate for lieutenant governor, she's running for the U.S. Senate now, but she challenged the result in that race, citing the potential for discrepancies due to faulty voting machines. Those cases do, in my mind, connect to political issues where there are strong views on the conservative and liberal side, um, but are those instances where more activist judges 
or in the scenario where we had a state Supreme Court where all nine members had been appointed by a progressive Democratic governor, is there a possibility that those cases would be ruled on differently? Yeah, like if you had nine justices all appointed by a hardcore progressive Democrat, um, that would matter because some, you know, like Georgia's been a Republican state for a while, but even some of the current appointees or former Democrats, some of them might even been had been appointed by Democrats, but the Georgia Democratic Party of the 80s and 90s and even the 2000s is very different than the Georgia Democratic Party of today. And so the like difference in one appointment from Kemp on this court, like you're not going to see a whole lot of changes. And it's not going to, you know, it's going to matter you know, if Abrams had this appointment versus Kemp, it would have mattered. It would have, you know, on the margins mattered. Uh, if you went from nine Kemp deal appointees to nine Abram appointees, there'd be some significant differences. Now, would that be in the AJC every day? I doubt it. But would the legal community be talking about it? Absolutely. And would there be a lot of interesting changes? Definitely. But I don't know if they're one, they are ones that people would notice in their everyday lives, but it definitely would affect their everyday lives. And, uh, you know, these races are, are very important. Um, these positions are very important, and they are dealing with important stuff, but it's not the front page, above the fold stuff that uh, people are always talking about. It's the behind-the-scenes mechanics of how uh, the democracy and the republic works. Um, so on that front, uh, I guess the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> <laughs> so one group of cases from rulings from other states' Supreme Courts that stuck out to me in doing research for this topic was that state Supreme Courts in other states have interpreted their own state constitutions on provisions that require states to provide an adequate education to children living in those states. They've interpreted those clauses to throw out state education funding formulas, basically deciding that the funding formula that in some instances created very wide disparities in the amount of funding given to poorer districts compared to wealthier districts, that those disparities meant that some children in the state were not getting an adequate education as interpreted by that state Supreme Court. And so the state Supreme Court in those cases mandated that the legislature come up with new formulas. Now, as far as I know, Luke, Georgia has not had a ruling along those lines, but is there other Georgia contexts in those kinds of cases? Well, Georgia actually did have a case on this exact issue of like what an adequate education means because, uh, you know, people were challenging that the state funding formula did not provide an adequate education. And basically, the Georgia Supreme Court said that, you know, we're not a legislative body and it's not up to us to define what an adequate education means. Because, I mean, to be fair, like legally speaking, there is no definition of what an adequate education is. Um, so they, they demurred and, you know, basically said it's the, it's a, it's the legislature's job to define an adequate education and, and, uh, make sure that's being provided for. Uh, though, interestingly enough, after that, very soon thereafter, uh, with that case, Georgia did significantly overhaul its formula. So probably wanting to avoid, uh, more lawsuits on, along those lines. Um, the, the, the other thing I would point out, you know, with, with, the Georgia Supreme Court specifically is, you know, it, it goes to interesting directions. 
Um, DUI law is something that uh, we talk about a lot in Georgia regarding our Supreme Court because they are very aggressive on allowing people who have um, been pulled over to uh, decline to take any DUI test or doing like breathalyzer um, uh, test and have that not be admitted against them. And like, that's not really a Republican or Democratic issue or liberal or conservative issue. It's just a matter of this is how we interpret the constitution in Georgia based off our history and based off the legislative debate. And so, um, you know, it, it goes to all sorts of different places. The thing I, I think I can say with some certainty is the thing that we're seeing on the federal level is happening on the state level where the Federalist Society is really starting to key in on these these races and on these positions and trying to ensure that people that meet their strict ideological criteria are put in these positions. And so while I would say that, it, you know, I haven't done research on it, but on a whole, I imagine the state courts are less ideologically pure than uh, these federal courts and these federal positions, it's still happening and it's probably only going to get worse if they remain elected positions because the information is so low uh, in these seats that a little bit of money goes a long way. And so definitely think that is something we're going to see more of. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there have been critiques of the way in which many states seat people on not only the state Supreme Court, but courts at all levels, courts of appeals, regular state courts. I don't know the whole hierarchy, Luke. You might know better than me. But Every there's state this, names it differently. But th there is a debate over whether judges should be elected positions or appointed positions. People who do argue in favor of elections look at cases similar to the one like school funding formulas and the decision that Georgia State Supreme Court made that they are not lawmakers, they don't get to define adequacy, but that other state Supreme Courts have established a standard of adequacy. They've said, look, elections give judges an independent base of support that gives them the opportunity to then feel more emboldened to challenge legislators either to compel them to do things that, for instance, the state constitution might require them to do, or to sort of tamp down on activist legislating. But the Brennan Center, a pretty influential organization on criminal justice reform issues, has actually argued that states should do away with elections for judges in their states and that they should instead have an appointment process that is transparent and that is shaped by a group of bipartisan people appointed to a nominating commission and that they make clear recommendations to a governor who then makes appointments based on those recommendations and appoints people to one long single term. Luke, what do you think about the, the different options for states, whether you're going to elect your judges or have them go through some sort of an appointment process? You know, Georgia does, in some sense, does a little bit of both. Yeah, I, I think this retirement is a good example of why I think we probably should just go to strike appointments. There's a good amount of research shown that the judges that have to run end up being more ideological, um, which is, I mean, just natural <laughs> thinking about if you have to campaign for things, you have to convince people to vote for you. Um, being like, I am a boring 
jurist who really loves the law and will do everything you know straight down the middle like the john roberts i call balls and strikes uh we can we can talk on another day if that's actually what he does but like that is what you actually want from a jurist um and is not a compelling campaign message um so on that front i think we should just like cut the charade and stop electing these positions um because the so many of them end up being appointments anyway especially in georgia um they're pretty much all appointments and uh i i don't really see much being gained from the system either because in georgia especially if you are running for a judicial position you can't really talk about what you would do like you can't really say that like you know this is not a georgia case but like for example if the you know if you're running for the federal Supreme court in the state of Georgia, like you couldn't say I will overturn citizens United, like you just can't do it. <laughs> and so it's like, I mean, like, I don't know like what the campaign accomplishes is I guess what I'm saying. And, and since, um, you know, the law and judges are a very specialized set of skills that you want very specific people to do. I think this is a prime place, uh, where you would want an independent commission to, qualify people say like yeah these guys you know these judges they're all different ideologically speaking but qualification wise they are all equal they would all be good jury you know jurists and um you know they're going to meet the minimum criteria that we think you should you know choose from feel free to choose any of them like i think that's a far better system because uh you know (laughs) for example one of the most uh infamous elected state supreme court justices in my mind is roy moore uh who should be nowhere near a courtroom on any side of it especially not behind the bench um so i i think you know judges it's it's just a different thing and so many of them are appointed anyway and i think we should just like cut the charade well i think to wrap here that actually your thoughts on elections luke brings to mind for me a really excellent column by Jim Galloway in the AJC. We'll put a link to it in show notes. The whole thing is worth reading, so we're not going to spoil it for you here. But one of the most interesting details from Judge Benham's initial election to the State Court of Appeals in 1984 was that when he was running for that statewide seat in 1984, he put out flyers in the Atlanta area with his face on them to promote his campaign. But he did not put a picture of himself on flyers that were circulated in South Georgia communities where there was still a lot of racism and reporters who were covering that race in 1984, including Jim Galloway, who was assigned to that race as a young reporter from the AJC, they asked him why his picture was not on the flyers that were going around about his campaign in South Georgia. And he claimed that it was a cost issue and reporters at the time basically knew that he was kind of lying about that because the real reason was that there was no way that voters in South Georgia were going to elect an African-American to really anything. And so he actually won his first statewide race, the first statewide race any African-American in Georgia won by basically not letting voters see entirely who he was. Um, He then ended up getting appointed to the state Supreme Court, had a long career, and is well-respected basically by everybody in Georgia politics for both his intellect uh, and his approach to the law and and his focus on creating more opportunities for people of color in the law in Georgia. 
Um, so we'll link that Galloway column in the show notes for this week. Definitely go check that one out. But for now, we're going to leave that topic there and we will talk to y'all again later this week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all. Thank you.